Welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 8, Into Exile. If you're a first-time listener, you really owe it to yourself to start at the beginning. You can find Episode 1 of Season 1 easily at 15minutesontheway.com. Otherwise, if you're already on the way with us, welcome back. I've missed you, friend. Here is today's story. Let us return for a moment, then, to our palace correspondent, Daniel. If you're still considering that trip to the British Museum, you can see the Nabonidus cylinders there. Room 55, found in Ur and Sippar. They're fired clay diaries of sorts with accounts concerning the reign of Nebuchadnezzar's son, Nabonidus. You can also see at the British Museum a relief of Nabonidus praying to the sun, the moon, and Venus. Might as well take it all in while you're there. The cylinders mention the eldest son of King Nabonidus, Belshazzar. Congratulations to a handful of you on the quick recognition of this being very similar to Daniel's Babylonian moniker, both honoring the Babylonian god, Bel. Belshazzar is crowned prince and rules when his dad's away from the capital city, which is often. Daniel 5 records a feast given by Belshazzar, as long as you're going to be in London, see Rembrandt's painting of the event over at the National Gallery. Belshazzar's feast features great amounts of wine, enough to cloud the judgment of Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. Some drunks get sad. Others get mean. Belshazzar gets cocky. He orders the servants to bring in the vessels of gold and silver his grandpa took from our temple in Jerusalem. When they do, he passes them around to his lords and wives and concubines. They then proceed to pour wine into them and drink from them, as if to say, so much for those lousy people and their puny deity. We're toasting our own gods with their sacred god-lips-only cups. To make sure you understand the smorgasbord facet of this action, Daniel comes right out and says, As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Daniel 5.4 The whole account fills the entire chapter. You already know this story, or at least you've heard of it, even if you don't think so. You see... As Belshazzar and his court are pouring wine down their gullets from the ornate cups meant to be placed before us in sacrifice, a hand appears out of nowhere and begins to write on the wall, right above the lampstand so it can be clearly seen. Belshazzar sees the hand literally writing on the wall, and he spits out his last mouthful of Merlot as his face turns as white as a ghost. His knees give out on him, and the man nearly faints. It's another one of those fun episodes where the locals can make neither head nor tail of it. You already know who comes in next. Belshazzar's mom just happens to remember that Daniel was able to solve Grandpa Nebuchadnezzar's dream puzzle decades before. Daniel is summoned and tells the king what the words on the wall are. 
Mene, mene, tekel, parsin. Then, of course, he parses out their meaning. These are references to monetary units, the mina, shekel, and half mina, respectively. But, just as we've had cows represent years and statue strata represent kingdoms, the minas and shekels on the wall are symbols of greater truths, as Daniel outlines. The three words level a judgment of measurement against Babylon. The kingdom and its days have been counted, many, and weighed, tekel, and will be divided, parsing. The last is a deft play on words that conveys both division and the proper name of Persia, for it will be Persia that supplants Babylon and rules over her lands. This judgment comes in answer to the pride of Babylon's kings, who took our initial blessing as license and entitlement, boasting of their greatness and never acknowledging ours. Babylonian pride is on circus-like display in Belshazzar's degrading gulps of wine from our vessels, and he will drink his shame to its dregs and die that very night. So if you think you've seen the handwriting on the wall, be thankful that you haven't seen the same hand writing on the wall as Belshazzar. You may have a sense of foreboding that something dramatic is going to happen, but in the Babylonian ruler's case, the writing is a portent of the nearing consequence of his insulting, degrading, and prideful conduct. Recall from time long past what happened to the Philistines when they captured my ark and kept it amongst themselves, how when they defiled that which was most sacred, their own bodies also were defiled with tumors. Belshazzar would welcome such lenient judgment, and his guests are spared consequence, since he is the one who chooses to mock us with our vessel. Of course, the sacred vessel we have entrusted to you for safekeeping is your life and all that makes it up, body, mind, spirit. You may think it a bit of a stretch to bring your habits into our discussion at this point, but hear us out. Belshazzar knew that the precious items he had hauled out of storage for use in deepening his drunkenness had been set aside solely for special use in worshipping me. Well, you were set aside for the same purpose, every bit of you. Your design calls for you to take in that which is good, pure, life-building, connecting to us, rooted in deep love and joy. Thus, when you pollute your body, mind, or spirit with that which you were not intended for, be it promiscuous sex, pornography, smoking, illicit drugs, the viewing of violence, the degradation of any class of human, too much fat, sugar, or alcohol, or any number of substances, actions, or thoughts that turn you away from us, then you join Belshazzar in his dissipating feast and in the hardness of his heart. Your handwriting may come in the form of high blood pressure, fights with your spouse, getting behind at the job, or in more severe forms like a heart attack, divorce, or getting fired. Belshazzar's consequence is final and fatal. Yours isn't yet, so read the writing on the wall and treat that which is sacred, the life we have given you, as the gift that it is.
part of your message is the same we gave Belshazzar in terms of your days being measured and numbered. Your life has a limit to it. Time will pass day after day, and you will reach the full measure of your life on your final day on earth. David writes in Psalm 39 of the wisdom of approaching life with this perspective. Show me, Yahweh, my life's end and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing to you. Psalm 39, 4 and 5. Make the most of the time you have. You do not have a limitless number of days on earth. Each one, each day, is a gift. Use today well, friend, and tomorrow, and the next. Live intentionally on the way with us. Beware of living haphazardly in constant reaction to things around you. Instead, Center your life with us and step into each day with our love, design, and desire for you ringing in your ears. Care for yourself and for others as if you were granted something more precious than gold or diamonds for safekeeping. For each and every one of you is worth far more to me than all the diamonds in the world. Belshazzar's days on earth, however, are over, as are the days of the Chaldeans' rule in Babylon. Just as Nebuchadnezzar had dreamed two generations earlier in his vision of that stratified statue, the Babylonian Empire gives way to the Persian, the Parsine on Belshazzar's wall, with Cyrus at its head. That would be Cyrus the Great also known as Cyrus II, just plain Cyrus to us. You see, I have singled out Cyrus as my instrument for shifting the ways of the known world to prepare for both the next immediate step in the Abra plan, as well as in its eventual primary fulfillment. So important are the shifts and changes we will bring about through our partnership with this ruler that Isaiah devotes an entire chapter to him. Lest Cyrus make the same mistake as Nebuchadnezzar and credit himself for all his victories, we remind him that I am the one who has called him by name to further my purposes upon the earth. That's Isaiah 45 which includes language closely related to our discourse just prior on your use of your life in 45, 9-12. If you didn't like my taking issue with some of your habits, you'd better get Tom out and read those four verses, Isaiah 45, 9-12. Cyrus establishes a far-reaching empire, uniting larger kingdoms into a single broad domain of which the smaller Babylonian empire becomes a part when Cyrus marches into Babylon against very little resistance. A key to Cyrus's success in joining realms together and in maintaining such sprawling borders is his practice of allowing those he's conquered to remain in place in their home and life. 
no uprooting people and dragging them into exile. This is no humanitarian gesture, of course. It's an economic one. People who retain their resources, infrastructure, and networks are far more productive and profitable than a handful of poorly motivated peasants left behind. Or worse yet, transplants forced to start their business from scratch in an entirely new habitat, as the upper crust of Israel has had to do in Babylon. Sure, they eventually contribute to the Babylonian economy over there, but their contribution would have remained strong, uninterrupted, and steady had they remained in place at home and simply directed steady tribute to their conqueror. Cyrus's policies also work well in that they foster greater loyalty in his various subjects who are allowed to remain in place especially when those subjects consider the alternative previously popular practice of violent removal from their homes. That removal of Israel, however, has been necessary and effective, even past its primary role as covenantal consequence. No one realizes just what they've got in life unless they lose it, be it a home, job, relationship, anything. You already know that full well. Israel had forgotten what it was to no longer have a home, taking for granted all that we and their ancestors had done to set them in the promised land. Just as children take for granted all that their parents do in order to protect and provide for them, our children had taken us and all our provision for granted. Babylon has provided a reminder of just how great the privilege was in which Israel had only recently lived. Now they have relearned that valuable lesson, at least for a time. Now, also, as a generation of faithless grumblers was sloughed off in the wilderness wanderings before Joshua stepped into the promised land, the great majority of the duplicitous generation taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar lies now in Babylonian graves. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to support us, spread the word. Give us a review on iTunes or Facebook. Then share a link to episode one with your friends. We hope our time together today has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And be good to yourself. <laughs>